and welcome to another episode of the Enter the Bible podcast, where you can get answers or at least reflections on everything you wanted to know about the Bible, but were afraid to ask. And today we are answering another listener question. Again, these questions come in from uh, on our website. Go to enterthebible.org. There's a button at the top of the page that says ask a question, and then there's a form and you can send it in and we read every question. And uh, we try to answer as many as we can. Uh, And today, a question comes in from a listener who asks, what's the difference between a Protestant Bible and a Catholic Bible? I think the answer to that one is pretty simple. One is true and one is false, right? (laughs) (laughs) Just kidding, y'all. Just kidding. All right, Katie, thank you for the question. (laughs) Uh, Here to help us answer that question. Uh, today is Christopher Fan Kaufman. So Christopher is a graduate of Luther Seminary. Uh, several years ago, uh, has been teaching uh, Greek for us at Luther Seminary as an adjunct, and is finishing up his PhD in New Testament studies at the University of Minnesota. So thank you for joining us, Christopher, to help us address this listener question. Glad to be here. I noticed Katie didn't say which one of the two is true. I, you know, so. I'm just, I'm withholding judgment. The, the, the listener may discern. Yeah, it's an interesting question because, you know, you, you would think sort of as we've talked, especially a lot in the past, uh, maybe 20 years or so about uh, the ways in which Uh, Roman Catholics and Protestants have come together on many issues. The question of what divides us is still interesting. And one of the things is just what's in our Bibles. Uh, I think there's two things that a a reader might notice right away when they look at a a Roman Catholic Bible, if they're Protestant or vice versa. The first is that the Psalms are numbered differently. And so one of the things you'll see is that uh, for Protestants, one of the most famous and well-loved Psalms is Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, etc. In Roman Catholic Bibles, that is Psalm 22. And the funny part is they end up with the same number at the end. They both have 150 Psalms, but they're divided differently. And Uh, The reason for that, and we're going to come back to this, so I want to spend just a moment on it, is that the Psalms are numbered differently depending on whether you're looking at the Hebrew text of the Psalms, what we call the Masoretic text, which was a, a version of the Hebrew Bible that has the vowel pointing in it. Uh, Otherwise the Hebrew Bible only has consonants, our earliest ones. And then the other is the Greek text that we call the Septuagint. Hmm. And so the Septuagint is a Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. And this was done probably in the third century BC. And as I said, the numbering is different. And because of that, uh, Roman Catholic Bibles, which are based on the Latin Vulgate. So we're talking about a lot of translations here. The Vulgate is Jerome's Latin translation of the Hebrew Bible and the Greek New Testament. And, and that dates from about the fourth century. Fourth century. Fourth century. Yeah, fourth century okay. AD. But, uh, mm-hmm. And that also follows Septuagint numbering. 
Whereas Protestant Bibles, which go back to really Martin Luther's German translation of the Bible, use the numbering in the Hebrew Masoretic text. And so, again, we get this funny thing. Both have 150 Psalms, but they divide and uh, number them slightly differently. So in the Roman Catholic Bible, Psalm 9 and 10 are combined, and 146 and 147 are split. But that would be the first thing you might notice if you open up a Bible. The second one, though, and the one that really gets people interested, I think, though, is that a Roman Catholic Bible has more books and some very interesting books. Um, We have a couple of different ways of referring to them, depending on your perspective. Uh, You'll sometimes hear them called apocryphal. And this is a term that also goes back to Martin Luther. And it's this idea of books that are sort of set aside or books that uh, don't quite fit in. And this is uh, why Protestant Bibles are slightly smaller, is that Luther, in putting his German Bible together, set these books aside, called them apocryphal. The other word, and we'll see if I can pronounce this right on the first try, is deuterocanonical. So I think we're going to, you know, I think we're going to talk a little bit today about canonical or what it means to have a canon of scripture. And deutero, just like Deuteronomy, just means second canon or additional mm-hmm. canon. And this is the way that they're often referred to uh, in Catholic Bibles. So canon, I think, uh, by the way, uh, some of the stuff we, uh, Katie and I have talked about uh, in at the beginning of season two in, a, I think, a four-part series we call Bible Basics. So some of these terms, if you've listened to that, may be familiar to you. But when we say canon, we mean an accepted collection of books, an authoritative a collection of books understood as authoritative or, or as scripture. I don't know if you would add anything to that, Christopher or Katie. Yeah, only that it comes from the Greek word canon, which means a measuring rod, something right. that you, how you measure everything else by. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I was just, I was just going to add that, that, like different these days in pop culture, different fandoms will use that because there's like the canonical story and then there's like fanfic or there's other stories that are like ruled out of the official storyline so that they can make new stories, which is kind of interesting. Or there's the term headcanon, which is like you made up something to fill a gap or a plot hole. um, And that's what you believe in your head, but that it's nowhere in the actual text. So it's a term of like oral Torah. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> the midrash of the you know Marvel Cinematic Universe. Mm. I don't know. That's really fascinating. I did not yeah. know that canonical was a term. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, making a comeback. Pop culture. Wow. Yeah. Here we go. So so the Roman Catholic canon then is larger than uh than the uh Protestant canon. Yep. Mm-hmm. Am I it, and I, the Eastern Orthodox too, right? Yes, right. Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there are very, uh, other canons, right? Smaller or um, what, not as widespread. I'm thinking of the Ethiopian Orthodox Church, for instance, mm-hmm. as an even larger canon, uh, including a book called Jubilees and, and mm-hmm. the Syrian Orthodox Church. And, the, you know, so there's Slavonic, <laughs> right? So, but but the two biggest ones really, are, or the three biggest ones are the Protestant, the Roman Catholic, and the Greek Orthodox yep. canons. Yeah. Yeah. Interestingly so, enough, uh, this is with all these different canons that we're talking about here. They all agree on the New Testament for the most part. 
that yeah. the books of the New Testament don't change. The question is, how many books get into the Old Testament and which books in particular? And so we see that uh, between Protestants and Catholics, again, we come back to this Hebrew versus Greek uh, dilemma. So the mm. Septuagint, the Greek text, contains more books than the Hebrew Bible. And one of the things that Luther does and Protestants make a point of when they begin translating their Bibles into vernacular languages. So instead of Latin, which is the language of church and the academy, they start translating them into German and English and French and all these languages. Yeah. They decide to only translate the books that are, first of all, the Greek New Testament, but then the books in the Hebrew Bible and only the books in the Hebrew Bible. And so Roman Catholic Bibles, on the other hand, have a series of books that are only found in Greek. And those are what we call, again, this apocryphal or deuterocanonical. They're very interesting books. Uh, so when I was growing up, uh, my dad used to read the lessons from church every day in his New Jerusalem Bible, which is a translation of the Bible that is a Roman Catholic translation. So I've been inducted into the mysteries of what is in the Apocrypha <laughs> for a long time. Um, but there are some, they are very often in genres that are closely associated with the books of the Hebrew Bible. So we have a couple of wisdom books. So these are books like Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, the wisdom of Solomon, the wisdom of Jesus ben Sirach. Uh, we have a book that is attributed to Baruch, the scribe of Jeremiah. So if you read the prophet Jeremiah, he has a scribe named Baruch who uh, plays a, a major part in, that, in his story. And we have a letter uh, from him in the Apocrypha. And then we have a couple historical books. The books of first and second Maccabees are two famous ones. Um, the Hanukkah story actually comes out of this history of the Maccabees. Uh, it deals with the temple and the cleansing of the temple by Judas Maccabeus after uh, it's desecrated by a tyrant with the wonderful name of Antiochus Epiphanes. And we get to the story of the cleansing of the temple and uh, the lighting of the lamps again and so forth, which in the later rabbinic material becomes the story of Hanukkah. Mm -hmm. So you see that again. Interestingly enough, that is not in the Hebrew Bible. Yeah, I was going to ask, are some of them in the Hebrew Bible and some not? Or are all the apocryphal texts not at all in the, he in the Hebrew Bible either? It's a, little bit, it's a little bit complicated. So there are a couple of books, Daniel and Esther, mm -hmm. where they are in the Hebrew Bible, but the Septuagint has extra chapters. Oh. Um, two of the one that I find quite delightful is at the end of Daniel, there are two stories in the Septuagint and thus the Apocrypha called Bell and the Dragon. And they're about the ways in which Daniel outwits the priests of Babylon and shows that their idols are not real gods. They're delightful little stories. In the book of in the book of Esther, uh, mm -hmm. it's interesting to these the so-called additions to Esther that are in the apocrypha um, make Esther more religious <laughs> than, <laughs> sure. than in the Hebrew text. Because in the in the yeah. Hebrew form of the book of Esther, which is what we have in in both Protestant and well in in Protestant Bibles and uh, Jewish Bibles, 
uh, Esther never, there's no prayer, there's no mention of God, there's no, um, nothing religious uh, in, uh, in the, the Hebrew book of Esther, but in the Greek translation of it, in the Septuagint translation of it, there are these additions, uh, like, you know, Esther prays, Mordecai, her cousin prays, mm. um, there are dreams and visions of God speaking uh, mm. to them. So, uh, so you can see why um, perhaps the Greek translators wanted to uh, add some, <laughs> some additional religious content. Um, there's debate about, you know, the, the you know, there was probably a, 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 an original Hebrew version that got translated into the Greek that is somewhat different than the Hebrew uh, version that we have now of the Book of Esther, but that's that's too technical. The, the point being, I, I think it's important to state that all of the books of the Old Testament that we have in Protestant Bibles, all of those are in Catholic mm. Bibles, right? Yep. So yeah, it's okay. not, it's not, it's a difference of addition rather than uh, subtraction or change, right? Mm -hmm. So, so both Protestants and Catholics, except obviously the whole New Testament, and except the whole Old Testament, that is understood in, by Protestants. That is understood by Protestants <laughs> and Jews, a, right? And, and Jews. Jews. Yes, okay. that's a really important point too, Katie. That is, yeah, that yeah. I think I, uh, I think part of the reason Luther. Uh, right, uh, puts aside the books of the Apocrypha is that Jews don't accept them as hmm. canonical scripture, right? Yep, really exactly. So, so Jews yeah. and Protestants have this kind of core of the Old Testament, these, uh, well, depending how you count it, um, you know, 39 books. Mm -hmm. Jews count First and Second Kings and First and Second Samuel as one book each, but those 39 books that we have in the Protestant Bible are also in the Catholic Bible. It's just that Catholics except these other books as deuterocanonical, as you said, Christopher, yep. kind of a second canon. So, so let me ask a question about that. So th this raises a, a few questions that if I'm, you know, uh, I'm putting myself in the imagination of our friend who um, submitted this question, and I can imagine kind of the theological question, like we're talking technically, what are the differences? And that's great. But I think a theological question that's probably animating the question is like, well, how do you, you know, like, how do you know which one is right? And especially if you're like a Protestant, right, that 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 is sort of founded on the notion of what, sola scriptura or word alone, right? That's kind of a big deal for Luther and for lots of Protestants, right, where it's like, how do we know that we need to reform the Roman Catholic Church at the Reformation? Well, because they're doing things that are against like what the teaching of scripture is. So if you have that as like a fundamental, like, um, you know, dogma, then like, what does it mean to argue about or not have consensus on what actually constitutes the core text? Well, I, I, I don't know. It's a good question, Katie, and it's good to, to move to that, that kind of theological question. There, there isn't disagreement about the core text, I guess, is hmm. one thing I would say, right? Like yeah. Protestants and Jews and Catholics all agree on those 39 books yeah. of the Old Testament. Um, but, you know, I guess that what you're getting at, right, is do we accept wisdom of Solomon, right, as scripture? Do we accept Ben Sirach or First and Second Maccabees? And that's, that's, that's a, it's a good question. I think we can talk about inspired writings without talking about them as scripture. 
in a sense. And certainly we can learn things from those books uh, that, that are either, you know, that are theologically rich and or just really fun, right? Like we didn't mention two books, Judith and Judith, Tobit. Yeah. Judith and Tobit, which are kind of along the lines of uh, uh, kind of Esther, um, kind of Daniel, right? These stories of Jews in the diaspora, Jews mm-hmm. not living outside of the land of Israel. Um, yeah. Judith takes place in Israel. Oh, you're right. You're right. Yeah. Sorry. Mm-hmm. But, but, Living that, under living under the the empire, right? Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. There are so, some famous paintings of Judith and Holofernes. This is a famous the Dutch Renaissance loved this motif, huh. uh, but Judith is this example of a religious and observant Jew who trusts God in the face of the Persian Empire and triumphs on account of her trust and devotion to God. And so it becomes a, a popular religious motif because of this. Cool. So they, they're addressing questions, and including first and second Maccabees as well, mm-hmm. right? Addressing questions of how do we live as God's people under the empire, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, or or outside of Israel, right? How mm-hmm. do we how do we maintain our our identity as the people of God uh, under persecution? Much like the Book of Daniel, of course, mm-hmm. or yeah the book of revelation for that. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. So I, I guess I would say there's still things to learn from these books, even if they're not uh, quite at the, you know, level for Protestants, at least not at the level of, of sacred scripture. Yeah. I think a, an interesting example of how to deal with this question is actually seen in the way Luther himself writes on them. So we've talked about that uh, Luther is uh, a large, for in a large way, responsible for the, I guess we'll call it smaller or more limited Protestant canon. Mm-hmm. But the funny part about Luther is that he he's a little bit slipperier on some of these questions mm-hmm. that I think we often assume that with uh, his emphasis on sola scriptura, he feels the need for a very tightly bound or very tightly defined canon. So when you read his writings, you'll see he quotes he calls it Ecclesiasticus, but this is the wisdom of Solomon. He quotes it quite often in his writings, mm. even though he does not include it in his canon. Uh, this is not quite the same, but along the same lines, he makes the famous or infamous, depending on your point of view, <laughs> quote that he calls James, the letter to James, an epistle of straw. And, <laughs> yes. You know, folks have often pointed to this as you know an example of the fact that Luther didn't think James should have been in the New Testament. But then when you read Luther's sermons and his writings, he quotes James everywhere hmm. as an authoritative writing on how to live the Christian life and what it means hmm. to live as a Christian. And so I think there, there are these ways, kind of as Catherine was saying, that the canon is more about how these works inspire and speak the word of God Hmm. than it is about uh, the specific books that are uh, that are bound within it Hmm. now Luther won't push that too far and most Protestants won't push that too far but there is this sort of uh, like I said a little bit of slipperiness or a little bit of uh, just sort of not being too tightly held to uh, the canon in the sense of these other works also speak to the situation of the people of God and also speak to the way that God blesses 
and God works and speaks among God's people. So it's a, it's a difficult question. I did want to note, this is, this goes back more to a technical thing and probably should have said it earlier, but all of these books that we're talking about, these books of the Apocrypha that are accepted by Catholics and not Protestants as scripture, um, they're all Jewish books, right? Mm. Like they're, they're not, uh, as Christopher already said, all the books of the New Testament are accepted, of course, by both Catholics and Protestants. Um, but these these books are all, um, some of them written originally in Greek, some of them are written originally in Hebrew, uh, but then translated into Greek. Um, and, and, and written in what we call the intertestamental period, right? So between basic, more or less between the close of the Old Testament canon, uh, and the and the time of Jesus. So we're talking third century BCE to um, to first century uh, BCE, maybe CE. But you know that that that's the time period. So um, so they're dealing with a lot of the same questions as we've already said. A lot of the same questions as the canonical biblical books that we're mm -hmm. talking about. And in fact, Daniel, the book of Daniel, which is in the canon is probably a little, some parts of that are a little later than some of the earlier parts of the Apocrypha. So there's, there's some, some um, fuzziness there be, between those lines drawn. Um, yes. But, the, but that, uh, sorry, go ahead, Christopher. Well, and I think one of the interesting things, and I think this is not always appreciated about the uh, Apocryphal books, is that it probably is the case that because they are in the, especially the Eastern Orthodox Bible, that is probably part of the reason they are not in the Hebrew Bible, that <laughs> the yeah. acceptance of them by Christians and the use of them by Christians made them, especially to the rabbis, who sort of after the destruction of the temple in the first century AD, are concerned with what it means to be Jewish and what it means to have the Jewish scriptures, it's probably not a coincidence that these writings, as we've talked about, that deal with living in the diaspora or these, uh, these writings that are in the Greek Bible that is being used by Christians, all it is being used by people who are becoming the Christian church. They have these books in their Greek Bible that they are taking all across the Roman Empire. It's probably not a coincidence that these books are rejected by the rabbis because they have, they are part of the Christian Bible from the very beginning, at the very least for part of the Eastern Church's Bible. And so I think that's something to, to be aware of when we're talking about them, is they are, they are books that are not uh, simply rejected or accepted arbitrarily. There's quite a bit going on with them. We should say to, to our listener uh, who asked this question and to others who, uh, who may wonder the same thing, um, read these books, you know, mm -hmm. look, look them over. There's, as Christopher said, there's some really fun stories in there and some, some very inspiring stories as well in uh, Judith and Tobit and, and, yeah. and others that, um, you know, there's nothing forbidden about them. You're <laughs> certainly welcome to read them and you can find them in any uh, not just the New Jerusalem uh, translation of the Bible, but uh, in in any kind of major study Bible, uh, you can find these books, and they're they're worth reading. Uh, we may not hold them up uh, in quite the same way as we do uh, the the core, you know, sixty six books of of the uh, 
of the Bible uh, that, that all Christians accept, uh, but they're certainly worth, uh, worth looking at. And I think for all of us, uh, whatever book of the Bible we're talking about or from the Apocrypha, there's going to be some that speak to us more than others, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, though Leviticus is one of my favorites, I know it doesn't speak <laughs> to very many people. <laughs> right. Uh, so, you know, uh, just there's, there's nothing forbidden about them. Uh, they, they are certainly, they, they speak about important matters uh, that can be edifying for all Christians, whether Protestant or Catholic. Yeah, I second that. And from my from my own personal point of view, one of the things that I can highly recommend about them, and I think this was already pointed out, uh, in much the same way as the New Testament, they are written by people who are dealing with a changing world and mm -hmm. are trying to figure out how to be asked that question. It comes up in the Psalms. How can we sing the songs of the Lord in a foreign land? Mm -hmm. This question of what does it mean to be a servant of God and to be God's people as the world is changing so quickly around them. And so I think in, in this modern world, which is also changing so fast, these books can be a source of inspiration and a source of uh, good counsel. So I, I highly recommend as well reading them and hearing what they have to say to us. Great. Well, thank you so much, Christopher, for joining us. Uh, thank and thank you, you to our listener who offered that question, again, as Katie said at the beginning, we really encourage you, uh, those of us, those of you listening to this podcast, we encourage you to go to enterthebible.com and, uh, and uh, dot org, sorry, enterthebible.org uh, and submit your own questions. Uh, and we, we will do our best to address as many as we can on this podcast. Uh, so thanks for listening to this episode of Enter the Bible, the Enter the Bible podcast. You Again, can get high quality courses and commentaries and resources and videos, even maps uh, and reflections at enterthebible.org. Uh, thanks for joining us.